Scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 3. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. This is God's word. You may be seated. I love how Aaron described the men's ministry event as an expedition. Uh, It sounds like they're going to discover the North Pole or something like that. Um, Well, if you were to go onto our church website, you would see that uh, a key aspect of our identity is that we are trying to pursue authentic community as a church. Now, that sounds really good, but what exactly does authentic community look like? Um, In Romans 12, the Apostle Paul kind of describes how the gospel shapes and forms authentic community. And and in that chapter, in Romans 12, he has this well-known phrase that he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. But how do we learn to do this? How How can we ensure that our hearts are rejoicing over the right things and weeping over the right things? Even more than that, how do we develop this affective agility that enables us to enter into both deep pain and profound joy? How is it that we become a place where people can both rest and wrestle? Now, an authentic community will respond to both tragedy and triumph. How do we live in community where both miscarriages and newborns happen in the same week? How do we live together in such a way where we can weep over someone's cancer diagnosis and rejoice with another's who's gone into remission? In, in summary or in short, how do we, New City, become a community that is both full of celebration and lamentation? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. Uh, as it was said already, um, we've got this kind of tradition that we started last year of spending one month out of the summer looking at the book of Psalms. And so we've entitled this Summer in the Psalms series, From Protest to Praise. From Protest to Praise. Now the Psalms help us to bring both pain and praise to voice. But it's, it's a little more than that. You see, the the 150 psalms were compiled and edited and organized into this complete book called the Psalter. So if you you, use that word Psalter, that's what I'm referring to, all 150 psalms. And although each psalm can kind of stand alone in its own right, uh, they actually do fit together and there's a continuity, a pattern, uh, a progress from psalm number one to 150. And you could describe that as a progress from protest to praise. The movement of the Psalter is one that begins with protest and ends in praise. And so we're going to kind of sample some psalms along the way and begin at the beginning and end at the end, and we're going to see how this progress from protest to praise happens throughout the book of Psalms. 
Now, when I talk about protest, what I mean is, is an articulation of defiant hope. And you can see protest uh, in marches on Washington. And you can hear protest coming off the lips of your toddler. That's not fair. And we can see praise in, in the enjoyment, when enjoyment reaches expression. It's everywhere. Whether we are praising the fact that sunshine is warming our face or lovers sitting across from one another at dinner on Valentine's Day, praise is everywhere. But the Psalms train us to bring both protest and praise before the face of God. And so praise is this giving of ourselves over to God in, in completing our joy by surrendering to all. And protest is this claiming of ourselves back from God, expecting help and compelling him to act. Eugene Peterson, I think, helps to summarize the the whole flow of this sermon series in this quote. All prayer pursued far enough becomes praise. I'm going to say that again. All prayer pursued far enough becomes praise. Any prayer, no matter how desperate its origin no matter how angry and fearful the experiences it traverses, ends up in praise. It does not always get there quickly or easily. In fact, the trip can take a lifetime, but the end is always praise. And so with that, we're going to turn to Psalm 3, which is our text for today. So if you have a Bible or the worship guide, go ahead and open up to Psalm 3 because we're going to be looking at it quite a bit together. Now, as we look at Psalm 3, I want to look at the situation the supplication and the salvation of Psalm 3. Again, the situation, the supplication, and the salvation of Psalm 3. So as we turn to the situation, um, there actually really are two situations in Psalm 3. The first is where the psalm is situated in the book of Psalms. Remember I said that there's, there's organization to the book of Psalms, so it matters where this psalm is in the entire book. The second situation is, what is it that prompted David to write this prayer? So the first situation. Psalms 1 and 2, as I said earlier, form this kind of two-part introduction to the entire book of Psalms. And if you remember, uh, way back the beginning of the year, I preached on Psalm 1. And we saw how Psalm 1 says that the righteous prosper and the wicked perish. And then we looked at Psalm 2 in our call to worship, and we saw that Psalm 2 basically says that God's king will reign despite his enemies. So Psalms 1 and 2 kind of give the impression that all is well in the world because God is in control. Which is why when we get to Psalm 3, it's actually kind of a surprise. Because Psalm 3 is a lament. If the righteous prosper and the wicked perish, if God is in control and his king is on his throne, then why would the very first actual psalm after the introduction be a lament? Why would it be a protest? Well, because David, God's chosen king, has been dethroned and he's crying out for help. If Psalms 1 and 2 are the preface to the Psalter, then Psalm 3 is chapter 1. It's kind of the beginning of the story. And so, Rather than reigning from Zion, the holy hill of Psalm 2, David is on the run from his own son. Which brings us to the second situation of Psalm 3. What was it that prompted David to pen this prayer? Well, if you look with me at the heading, the heading says this, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. This heading kind of situates this psalm in the context of a story. 
And this story is found in 2 Samuel. But, but the most tragic words of this entire psalm are those words that conclude the heading. His son. You see, because Absalom was King David's oldest living son. And, and the Bible actually tells us that Absalom was super handsome, just like really good looking, and that he had really nice hair. Okay? So just, I mean, in other words, Absalom would probably be on the cover of GQ Ancient Israel Edition, if, if there was such a thing. He's just a good looking dude. And, and his hair was so long, the Bible records that every year he would cut it and it weighed about five pounds, which apparently was cool back then. I, I honestly don't know. Um, but Absalom, he begins to kind of actively campaign subversively against his father, who's the rightful king. And he uses his popularity, his good looks, his nice hair to sway people into making him king. And so he preyed on his people's desire for justice and he undermined his father's authority. And he was so successful at this that a messenger comes to David and says this, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. This is a deeply personal and painful betrayal of the worst kind. David now is likely to be murdered. I mean, every good usurper knows that the first thing you do is you kill the former king, lest he take up some, some rebellion and overthrow you again. And so David's life is in jeopardy at this point, and he flees from his promised throne in Zion. And so God's chosen king is on the run, dethroned and displaced from his palace atop his holy hill. And that is where we pick up with verse 1. That's the situation that caused David to, to pen this prayer. So if you look with me at verse 1, it says this. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. You see, David's enemies are accruing and accusing. And I'm actually not convinced that his enemies are only humans. The, the word Satan actually means accuser. And the accusations that are being thrown at David are pretty diabolical. And so as David, uh, as we pray through, through the Psalms and we hear uh, David's voice and Asaph and Korah and these other, these other psalmists pray, we're going to encounter a lot of enemies. And, and I think it's important that we'll notice that the Psalms actually, they kind of generalize the enemies. In other words, if you, were to, if you were to look at Psalm 3, it doesn't say, save me from Absalom, that dirty, backstabbing son of mine. No, no, no. It says, oh Lord, how many are my foes. Broad enough, general enough to where anybody could take these words on their own lips and express a protest to their God. The Psalms were designed for us to pick them up and pray them as our own. But there's a question here that, that many of you will have if you read this psalm attentively, and that is, how do we as followers of Jesus pray against our enemies? I'm going to come back to that towards the end of the sermon. But in the meantime, David's enemies, they're not just violently dangerous, but they're verbally assaulting. You look at verse 2 and it says, Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. They knew how to cut right to the very heart of his confidence that God's not going to act on your behalf. Now, I'm asked often, why is it that I love the Psalms so much? And, and one of the reasons is because the Psalms kind of teach me what the normal Christian life looks like. Um, in other words, um, when I read through the Psalms, they kind of normalize my experience as a follower of Jesus. 
When I was 19 and I just had become a Christian, I really wrestled against uh, what would be called assurance of salvation. In other words, I wasn't really sure if this was the real deal or if I had just kind of made all of this up in some emotional experience. Because I was learning how to act Christianly and how to think well about the Bible. And and really, frankly, Christianity is a really great place to get human praise. I knew my own heart. As I read the scriptures, I became more aware of my own sinfulness. And I also became more aware of the fact that Christians are, are those who begin to have victory over their sin. I wasn't experiencing that. And so on, often my sensitive conscience would say to me, there is no salvation for you in God. And so one of the reasons I, I, I love the Psalms is because as I began to pray through them, I saw that struggling with the authenticity of your faith is actually a pretty common experience among the people of God. So much so that the Holy Spirit canonized these prayers so that thousands of years of believers in God and believers in Jesus could take these words themselves and find in them hope for their own soul. And so I I think that the helpfulness of the Psalms is not only that they normalize Christian life, but they also teach us how to suffer well. And so as we look at David, how David responded to this situation, we'll look and we'll see his supplication. In other words, how is it that he humbly cried out to God for help? Now, in verses 3 through 7, David, David's prayer exhibits uh, what traditionally have been called the three aspects of authentic faith. These three aspects of knowledge, assent, and trust. All right? The three aspects of authentic faith are knowledge, assent, and trust. Now, all three are significant. Knowledge is the comprehension of God's promises. Assent is the conviction that they are true. And then trust is the confidence that they can be depended on. In other words, if you met an engineer who could, who could tell you with specificity all the details of the structural integrity of a bridge, but she wouldn't step onto it herself, you would have some questions about the trustworthiness of that bridge. And likewise, if we can wax eloquently about our God and, and spew out really great theology— but our lives don't really look like we depend on him in any real way, people are going to doubt the trustworthiness of our God. And and so it's important that we see that knowledge, assent, and trust are all essential aspects of faith. And knowledge and assent without trust is this kind of cold rationalism. And trust without knowledge and assent is a blind leap. So all three woven together create an authentic faith. Now, I love it because David's prayer actually models all three of these aspects of authentic faith, which is significant because our prayers, more than anything else, reveal what we really believe. In other words, you might be able to ace a theology exam, but what you really believe is best discovered in your prayers. This is why prayerlessness is often called practical atheism. And and so as we look how David begins his prayer with knowledge of God and his promises, we're learning a little bit about what faith looks like. Look with me at verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I actually first learned this verse by heart when I became a bicycle commuter in Orlando. Um, and some of you already know why that is. And, and it actually, I came across this friendly statistic that said that Orlando is the most dangerous city in the United States for bicycle riders. 
And so as I became more aware of the impending doom of riding a bicycle on the streets in Orlando, I learned this prayer. And every time I would sit on my seat, I would say, you, oh Lord, are a shield about me. And I would pray this because I really needed some protection. Now, David prays this in a little bit of a different circumstance. Okay, David knows that God is his shield over and against the frailty of his humanity in the hands of his enemies. David, he knows that God is his glory over against the loss of his people, his palace, and his power. David knows that God is the lifter of his head over and against the shame and dejection that he feels. I love this last one. I love this last line that God knows that pain has this propensity to cause us to look inward towards navel gazing, right? And and so what this psalm says is that when we suffer, God actually, he gently lifts our heads to look outside, outside of ourselves to him in hope. Next, David moves from knowledge of God's promises to conviction that these promises are actually true. And so look at verse four with me. He says this. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. Knowing God's promises, David threw himself on the mercy and faithfulness of God. Notice that God answered David from his holy hill. This is significant because that holy hill is Jerusalem. It's, It's Mount Zion where David used to reign. This is the throne that he had to leave in order to flee from his son Absalom. And and David knows actually whose throne this really is. In other words, although Absalom has displaced David from reigning in Zion, he remembers that it's the Lord who truly reigns from that holy hill. You might remember from Psalm 2, the promise said this, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, the Lord says. And so commentator Derek Kidner says this, Not Absalom's decrees, but the Lord's will issue from Mount Zion to determine David's fortunes. And so David, confident uh, that these promises that the Lord made to him, um, he's become convicted that they're true. And so now he cries out to the Lord and acts on those promises. In other words, finally, David shows us his authentic faith by confidently entrusting himself into the hands of God. Look at verses five and six. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Now, we all know what it's like to lay your head down on a pillow at night, but anxiety keeps you awake as your mind just kind of tells you stories of the worst case scenario. In fact, this happened to me twice this week, ironically. And, and so, frankly, I don't think many of us are fearful of being murdered in our sleep like David was. Somebody in there might be like, you don't know my spouse, dude. Okay, let's talk about that after. That's a big deal. Uh, but, but David sleeps. How does David sleep? Well, because he trusts that the Lord will sustain him. He, he actually has confidence in God so much so that it overrides his nervous system's fight or flight mode. And he's able to lay himself down in the protective hands of his God and is able to drift to sleep. I think this is incredible because David knows that the people all around of verse 6 are no match for the Lord's shield that's all around in verse 3. And so because of that, it's not just knowledge of the Lord's protection, nor is it just this conviction or assent to the truth that that the Lord's protection is real, but it's a, a genuine trust that the Lord really is my shield enough so that I can fall asleep within his arms. 
Commentator Bruce Walkie says this, though the anointed king's landscape is in disarray, his faith in God gives his spiritual inscape some order. In other words, David's situation has not changed, but David has changed. Hear this, because prayer may not actually change your situation, but prayer will change the one who, change, who prays. And so it's a significant thing that, that our prayers actually go up to God regardless of how our situations change. Because we begin to be changed as we lift these things to the Lord. But for David, security will not suffice. Derek Kidner says this, For David, refuge is not enough. To settle for anything less than victory would be a virtual abdication. Hence the uncompromising terms of verse 7. So look with me at verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Here again, the Psalms teach us a boldness that might be foreign to our prayer life. Right? I mean, in, in, in verse 7 at the beginning, David is actually commanding God. The words arise and save me are imperatives. They're commands coming from David to the Lord. And so he's commanding God to act in light of his promises. And as we pray the Psalms, they teach us, they train us in this holy audacity in our prayer lives. And and this is because protest actually proceeds from promise. Complaint arises from covenant. God has promised himself to his people. He has covenanted himself to his people in such a way that they are inseparable. It's kind of like this. Those of us who are married in here, we know that our marriages are a covenant that we are able to hold our spouses to, right? I mean, if your spouse left you when times got tough, you could protest, but you said for better or for worse, If your spouse deserted you when you got cancer, you could contend. You said in sickness and in health. And if your spouse abandoned you when you went broke, you could cry out. You said for richer, for poorer. You see, the heart of lament is holding God to his word. It's when we're aware of his promises, we can go to this covenantal God of ours and we can call him to action. Because he's promised himself to act. And so you can only protest a promise-keeping God. It's only a a faithful God who would tolerate lament. Right? I mean, if God didn't want to be taken seriously, he wouldn't put up with protests like these. But in fact, it's the exact opposite. Not only does he tolerate it, he teaches it, hoping that his people would cry out to him in this way. One of my favorite protests comes from Psalm uh, 74, verse 11. It says this, The psalmist is praying this to the Lord and says, Why do you hold back your hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. In other words, get your hands out of your pockets and do something. The psalmist prays that way. I think we all know we've got something we can learn from this book of prayers. And and so we even see David's audacity in commanding God to act, but it flows from an authentic faith in the promises of God. But now you may, be, have asked, you may be asked this question kind of inside. You might be asking, what do we do with the second half of verse 7? Which reads this, For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Not a coffee cup verse, right? I mean, we can agree on that. 
And, and so, in other words, when we, when we look at this psalm, we kind of get a little, we cringe a little bit from some of this stuff. There's a story that one pastor tells about how he was sitting with some college students and they were praying through the psalms verse by verse together. And they were taking up Psalm 3 and they were going around and they were praying every single verse until verse 7 landed on this kind of mild-mannered student. Uh, and he kind of mustered up all the fierceness he could. And he prayed, Lord, I just ask that you would just strike all my enemies on the cheek. Will you please just break their teeth? And everybody just started laughing out loud at him. Right? Because really these outcries against enemies are a little uncomfortable for us. Especially those of us who know Jesus' command that we should pray for our enemies. That we ought to bless and, uh, those who persecute us and not curse them. And so I said we'd come back to how do we deal with our enemies as followers of Jesus. And so I want to look at how do we pray these cursing or what are called imprecatory psalms? How do we pray these well? Now, at the beginning, I just want to say this question deserves a lot more time that I can give to it. So I actually wrote an article, 22 Reasons to Pray the Cursing Psalms. And if you want to read that, if you want more information, just ask me for it. I'll send it to you. Okay. So with that aside, if you're upset because I don't handle this very well, that's, that's my little caveat. It gets me out of jail free card. First of all, since the Psalms explore the full range of human emotion, how could they not express anger? If they're really going to be true to human experience, how could they leave out things like rage and betrayal and desperate fear? At best, we would, sing, we would consider them out of touch. At worst, we would consider them inauthentic. They didn't really understand what true human experience is really like. Old Testament scholar says this, the real theological problem is not that there's vengeance there in the Psalms, but that it's here in our own hearts. That it is in the Psalms only reflects how attuned the Psalter is to what goes on inside and among us. So we don't want to make the mistake of thinking, wow, they were really ruthless back there and then, without also realizing we have the same human heart here and now. The second thing is that the imprecatory Psalms, they recognize that with all social, social justice, redemption and judgment go hand in hand. In other words, the liberation of sex slaves comes at the incarceration of those enslavers. The lifting up of the poor is the bringing down of their oppressors. Equality for minorities includes penalties for hate crimes. And so we see that liberation or redemption has to go hand in hand with judgment. And this is what we're doing when we pray these imprecatory psalms. We're calling upon the judge of all the earth to do his job and to bring about justice. Third and finally, uh, this isn't just an Old Testament problem. In fact, the New Testament has no embarrassment by quoting these psalms all over the place. Jesus himself quotes imprecatory psalms when he pronounces judgment in Matthew chapter 26. In Revelation 6.10, the saints who are in heaven, hear this, the saints, perfect, sinless, in heaven are praying this, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now you might just be like, oh, that's Revelation, dude. That's scary stuff. Okay, Romans. Paul says in Romans, in the same breath where he says, never avenge yourselves, he says, but leave it to the wrath of God. 
Listen, the only way that we as Christians can truly seek justice and yet refrain from revenge is because we know that God will judge all evil, whether in hell or on the cross. And so these Psalms give us words to where we, we shouldn't just simply dismiss them because they, they kind of grate against our modern sensibilities, but we should take them up on our own lips and pray them. So how do we pray them? How do we actually practically pray these? First, pray them against Satan and his cohorts. It's really easy and tempting for us to believe that he's not actually out there prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to kill and steal and destroy and that Satan himself is kind of the the motivating evil force that actually fuels a lot of human evil in this world. Second, pray them against your own sinful nature. Both Jesus and Paul teach us that we ought to wage war on this enemy within that causes us to to pull away from God and from community and to become self-centered. And so we pray these psalms even against the enemy that lives within us. Third, we pray them against the world systems of corruption and oppression. We're reminded that evil and injustice is actually embedded in the way the world works. It's not enough to pray these against individuals. They need to be prayed against systems of oppression. Fourth and finally, and this really does come last, we pray them against enemies, first gods and then our own. Now we have to be careful here because it's easy to conflate our enemies with God's enemies in such a way that we actually uh, let this kind of evil that's lurking in our own hearts be expressed. But we do have permission, I believe, from the Psalms and from the New Testament, to pray these against enemies. Imprecatory psalms are always prayed from a position of vulnerability and weakness, never from dominance or triumphalism. Even David himself is praying, break me, break the the jaws of my enemy, because he's saying, I'm caught in their teeth. So break it, because it's the only way that my my self is going to get released from these, these jaws that have clamped down on me. Weakness, vulnerability, asking God to do something he can't do for himself. David's prayer is not just for safety, but for victory, which can only come at the defeat of his enemy. A prayer for safety would have meant abdication of the throne to Absalom, who's a false king. And so for us, we don't just pray for safety either. We pray, as Jesus himself taught us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. And we know that that deliverance only happens at the conquering of that evil one. So David doesn't just pray uh, for the conquering of his enemies, but as we'll see, he he prays for their blessing and their salvation. Look with me at verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. I love this. Notice the contrast between the original taunt. There is no salvation for him in God. And notice that contrast with David's final declaration. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not yours to say who it belongs to because it belongs to the Lord. I mentioned earlier that I had a struggle with my own confidence in kind of assurance of my own salvation. Well, this verse was actually part of the remedy. As I began to lean more heavily on the utter grace of God and salvation, as I was able to recognize that without the grace of God, I wouldn't even want to want God, I began to become comforted that salvation belongs to the Lord. 
And so if you're in here this morning and you're a believer of Jesus, it's because God sovereignly intervened in your life and drew you to his son. And if you're in here and you're not a believer in Jesus, watch out. It it was probably a bad idea to come to worship with us this morning because this is probably more evidence that God is hunting you in the best possible way. Because God is about the serious business of seeking sinners and bringing them to himself. In other words, salvation belongs to the Lord. But David goes on, and if you remember, David was told that the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And so when David prays, your blessing be on your people, he's praying for Israel. He's praying for the very people who abandoned him to follow after Absalom. There's something incredible here because he's praying for his defectors, his enemies, the ones whom he calls your people, Lord. And it reminds us a little bit of Jesus. It sounds a lot like Jesus who's praying for the blessing and the forgiveness of his enemies while he's dying to make those very enemies his people. In fact, this entire psalm and every psalm resonates and resounds with the voice of Jesus. Right? Because Jesus endured a deeply personal and painful betrayal of the worst kind when Judas backstabbed him and his disciples deserted him. Jesus was surrounded by foes as religious rulers and Roman soldiers rose up against him all around. Jesus was being crucified and his enemies mocked him saying, he trusts in God, let God deliver him if he desires him. And Jesus took on the curses of this psalm. He was struck on the cheek in the place of his enemies. He climbed the unholy hill of Golgotha Golgotha with a cross on his back. And so after his death, Jesus was laid to sleep in a tomb, but he woke again. For the Lord sustained him with resurrection power. And and as he was raised up, he ascended the holy hill and sits at the right hand of God the Father. And he has his rightful reign as king of all. And so it was Jesus who brought the blessing of God on his people through his death and resurrection. In his death, Jesus triumphed over the devil, crushing his head beneath his heel. In his resurrection, Jesus broke the teeth of death, freeing his people from its jaws. And so now we end where we began. In light of all of this, how do we, New City, become a community of celebration and lamentation? First, we inhabit this textbook of protest and praise until we are trained by Jesus in rejoicing and lamenting. Second, we trust that because of the covenant faithfulness of God in Christ— We can protest the evil of our world, knowing that the decisive victory has already been accomplished in Christ. Third and finally, we press on from protest to praise, expecting our good King Jesus to come again to judge the living and the dead and reveal his rightful rule over all of creation. Let us now pray to that King. Lord Jesus, we know that you are the true anointed king, the one, the Messiah of Psalm 2. We know that you are the one who was dethroned and displaced, the one who was on the run from your enemies and and yet who purchased those enemies among whom we all are a part so that we might join you and be your people. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd be working through your word this morning, that you would be drawing all of the hearts in this room to yourself. 
I pray for those who are far from you, uh, that you would be seeking them intensely and that you would draw them to a trust in Jesus. I pray for all of us that we would be able to take up the words of Psalm 3 and, and protest and praise you because salvation belongs to the Lord. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.